Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So Ronan Bennett is grocery shopping. He looks outside, he sees a drug deal going on, but rather than walk away, after the deal is over, he walks over and starts asking questions. That curiosity, empathy, and nose for a good story led to Ronan's show Top Boy, one of the most critically acclaimed TV shows of the past decade. Ronan Bennett will be here to tell you about that moment, plus how his show got cancelled and then saved by Drake. That's coming up. What you ain't noticed, things have changed. You're not dealing with a mandem no more. You're dealing with the ZTs. ZTs? What's that? Rubber duckies and bubble bath? ZTs stand for zero tolerance. For any other gang, for anyone else shot in on the streets. And they all work for me. And that's your only option. That is a clip from the Netflix show Top Boy. I don't know if you're watching Top Boy. It follows the lives of young drug dealers in a fictional public housing neighborhood. Really, though, that's just the setting. The show is really about family and community and the things we'll do for them. But the story behind the scenes of Top Boy, I feel like that's a a show in itself. Check this out. So Top Boy first airs in the UK in 2011. Goes for two seasons, does really well in terms of audience, does really well in terms of, like, critical acclaim. And then it gets canceled. And you know... You know when a show you love gets cancelled and you wish, oh my god, I wish there was something I could do just to get a couple more episodes? What if there was something you could do? Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. So this is where the story gets interesting. Drake steps in. Turns out... He was a big fan of the show. He was disappointed that it got canceled. He says he wants to executive produce the show. He takes meetings with Netflix, says this show needs to be on the air. And lo and behold, it is. It goes for three seasons on Netflix. And now it's back again in in a different form. So Ronan Bennett is the creator and writer of Top Boy. He's been there for this whole wild story. He just released a new novel based on the series. It's called Jack, a Top Boy Story. And we got Ronan on the line recently to talk about the history of the show, to talk about the novel, to talk about the whole Drake story. But one thing stuck out to me in our conversation, which is about a lot of different things. He says that um, his writing is informed by three things. Parenthood, bereavement, and imprisonment. All things that Ronan has firsthand experience with. But I, I love this conversation. It's about, I mean, it's about his own life story, which is, again, is, is its own show. It's about empathy. It's about compassion. It's about listening. And we started by getting the story of the origin of the whole thing, something that Ronan saw in his own neighborhood. Take a listen. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm um, very well, thank you, Tom, um, and thank you for having me. That's my pleasure. I really enjoyed. Um, I really enjoyed reading the book. 
Uh, that's a, that's a nice way to start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I have Canadian friends, and I know they're polite. <laughs> so it's it's hard to trust anything I'm telling you, isn't it, Ron? <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll take you as a man of your word. I appreciate it. Well, let's start with the beginning of Top Boy in general. I, my understanding is that it all began on like a supermarket trip. Can you tell me that story? Sure, sure. So in my world, projects usually begin. Uh, with a call or an email uh, from a producer or your agent or something like that. But this was different. One early one morning, you know, eight o'clock in the morning, something like that. I went round the corner from my house to my local supermarket. It's a trip of about three or four minutes. And outside the supermarket, as I was about to go in, I saw a small child, a kid, um, you know, maybe 10, maybe 12, something like that. Um, and he was dealing drugs. He was just um, standing there. Somebody came up on a bicycle, handed him some money. He spat something into the the road. Uh, the cyclist bent down to pick it up and moved off very quickly. And somebody came and took the money, and he moved off very quickly. The whole thing took, oh, I would say, 30 seconds or so. And obviously, I knew I live in Hackney in East London, and you know this this kind of stuff goes on. I guess it goes on in lots of places, but I'd never seen it before, and I was intrigued. So I asked the kid. I watched him again. There was one other deal that he did, and after that, I went over to talk to him. He thought that I was police to begin with. Uh, I, I said I was a writer and just wanted to talk to him. He asked me for money, and you know he was a hustler. He, I wouldn't do that. And he, he walked away, and I never saw him again. But it made me think about, you know, what was going on just a few minutes from my own house. And I asked a friend in Hackney, a very well-respected uh, man called Jerry Jackson uh, from of Jamaican origin uh, about this. And he put me in touch with some people who worked on the road. And if you're a top boy, fan, you'll know that working on the road means, you know, being on the corner, selling drugs and doing all of that. And that was really the beginning of it. What was inter- What was it that was um, interesting to you uh, about it? Because I mentioned that in the introduction, it's not, it's a show about drug dealing. It's a show about crime, but it's, but it's also about community. It's also about family. It's also about um, mentorship. It's also about the way we all look out for for one another. What what was it that interested you about what you saw there? Because my feeling is it's it's more than just the actual transaction. Of course, um, it, I just wanted to know how this kid had ended up, you know, outside a supermarket on a weekday selling drugs, and I I, I wanted to know about you know. I wanted to know how it all worked, yes, but I wanted to know, you know, what? How does somebody take that, take those decisions, or whatever decisions were necessary in order to get where that kid was? So Jerry put me in touch with road men, as as they're called, who uh, mostly very young men. They were kind of eighteen, nineteen, into the early twenties, and my imp- my impression of them was that, you know, they, they all came from broken homes. They, their, their, their mothers for whom they had great respect 
their mothers were struggling to bring them and their siblings up. There was there was never enough money. They faced uh, institutional discrimination uh, from the police. They, you know, they were already just by virtue of the fact that they were black and poor, they were already a suspect community. Um, they lived in uh, mostly, you know, pretty awful housing conditions. So I, 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 I'm, I wasn't interested in creating a, you know, exploit, you know, an exploitative show about here, you know, I'm going to take you into the world of this really scary world. I wanted to take people into a world that exists, but I also wanted to, for them to see that people who sell drugs on street corners are, you know, they're the same as the rest of us. They have families, they have needs, they have dreams. Uh, they're not, as a policeman put it to me, a policeman in Hackney, a senior policeman in Hackney put it to me. He said, we know people buy and sell drugs in Hackney. That doesn't make them bad people. Mm. And so what I tried to do was just get under the skin of this world, not to be patronizing about it, not to, to think that I knew more than they did. I, I didn't moralize. It's the, the show, as you know, is not judgmental. It just shows the viewer, and in the case of the novel, the reader, how this world functions and how people function within it. I told you, look, don't come around here. You just give us a hit, please. Where's your pee? He's got it. I know money, man. It's got Bluetooth. <laughs> Everyone's got Bluetooth cards. Yeah. My ancestors have got Bluetooth. Bring me something more interesting, like an iPad or something. Let me just get two white pieces. Just come on, man. I was reading uh, an interview with you before I came in, and you said something like being Irish um, allows for um, an ease in imagining the world of Top Boy or like an ease in approaching the empathy of of Top Boy. What what did you mean by that? Well, um, I grew up in Belfast at the height of the Troubles. Violence like this hit Northern Ireland after years of simmering bitterness between the Catholic minority and the ruling Protestant regime. Within this unhappy structure... And I was part of the, you know, what's called the, the Catholic nationalist community. And we were a suspect community. You know, the, the, the state of, of the north of Ireland was created to be a Protestant British state. That's just a historical fact. When Ireland was partitioned in 19... 21, 22, uh, it, it, the, they took a corner of the northeast of Ireland where there was a Protestant pro-British majority and they created a state for that majority. But within it, there was a sizable Catholic minority that was viewed as um, an enemy. And so I grew up in the, I grew up as part of a suspect community. And then when I came to London, I looked around and uh, you know, my community, the Irish community, was suspect here, but so were black people. And in many ways, many, many ways, it was much harder for them, for the black community. Um, there was a, I know you're a, you know, I know you're a musician. You, you'll, you'll know Thin Lizzy and Phil Linnett. Yeah. Tonight there's gonna be a jailbreak somewhere in this town. Uh, you know, a great black Irishman who, um, there was a there was a infamous poster on a, in a board in a boarding house in England in the nineteen seventies in London that said, "No blacks, no Irish, no dogs," 
And Phil Linnett had a T-shirt made up when he was on stage uh, with the band Thin, Thin Lizzy. And he had a T-shirt made up that said, more blacks, more Irish, more dogs. And I sort of, you know, in some, in some ways, um, in, you know, in some ways, that ethos, filled in its ethos, was what was in me when I was thinking about creating the show. Would the, um, and we don't have to talk about this too much, but I also know that, um, you know, like the folks in Top Boy, you had had uh, run-ins with police when you were 18, you were um, sentenced to life for a crime you didn't do. Uh, you were accused of being in a, a bank robbery, an IRA bank robbery. A police inspector was killed. You know, real miscarriage of justice. You were released after a year. The evidence charging you was so so poor. You were sent to the same jail as Bobby Sands, the very famous uh, hunger striker, the uh, Irish Republican hunger striker. Did, what? Well, I guess I have a couple of questions about that. One, do you do you recall that time in in your life when you're writing Top Boy? Especially when you go through something like that at such a young age, as much as you want to talk about it, Ronan. Yes, um, I mean it's just you know we every writer, every person brings into their later life, you know, the experiences that you've had as a as a young man or woman, and obviously imprisonment. It was a very dramatic experience. It was a very dramatic time. But I should say that in the Ireland of those days. It was not unusual. Mm. You know, it was a fairly not I, no that would be an exaggeration to say it was a fairly standard experience, but it wasn't an unusual experience. And you know, it was really conveyor belt justice. There were no juries. Uh, you, trials were nasty, brutish, and short. And I ended up in Longkesh, a prisoner of war camp. And um, what I learned in there, what well, I think the takeaway, the biggest takeaway for me was that. The imp- was about the importance of solidarity, was the importance of people in a vulnerable situation standing up for each other. Because if they didn't stand up for each other, then those with authority, those um, who had uh, um, um, uh, evil intent, would trample all over them. So solidarity for me meant standing along shoulder to shoulder with people who were vulnerable and weak, and that I, I brought that into my into my writing. Into, it's just it's it's part of my ethos. Imprisonment, along with parenthood and bereavement, are probably the three most important life experiences that I've had that in, you know make me the person I am, but also inform the way I write and the things that I write about. It, it was it, it was imprisonment. Um, bereavement. I know you, you you lost your your wife to cancer a number of years ago. It was imprisonment, bereavement, and what was the other one? Parenthood. Parenthood. Yeah, they they're all there in Top Boy, aren't they? Uh, they're all yes, they're all there. Yes, they're all there. In fact, my wife became ill between the first and second seasons of Top Boy, and I, I, you you start you start to see in in the second season. Hospitals, um, uh, intensive care units, uh, you know, people becoming ill. And it was, and and in the Netflix reincarnation, uh, one of the characters um, has his mother is is a cancer uh, patient, and so things like that. 
see, I always say about writing that everything goes into the mix. You know, whatever when, when you're writing, everything that's in your head and in your heart goes into the mix of what you're writing, and it finds some way of expressing itself, whether it's a novel or a film or a or a series. It, it comes out, or at least it does for me. Oh, is there, I don't know, something I could do to help? And why would you help me? Well, if a man like you is even thinking about stealing from his mother, then that man's got to have some troubles. A man like me? you got morals to shame, I can see that. You don't know me. But why, I mean, this is somewhat of a heady question, why writing at all? Like when you go through in- incarceration and you um, and you and you come out on the other side of it, or when you 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 you, you know you see this uh, you see a, a drug deal take place, and I know you've been writing for a really really long time. I guess um, I guess my question is like, there's a lot of paths to writing. There's like you know there's journalism, and then I know you were with the you were with the Labour Party for a while. There's like political uh, activism and, and writing in that. I'm always curious about just as someone who sort of like dedicated his own life to to art and to to making stuff, why that was the that was the track for you. Um, I think it would. The first thing to say is there there wasn't a plan, and I think for a lot of us, especially if you end up in the arts, there isn't necessarily a plan. It's there's there's not exactly a career structure that you or or an entry into the arts. Um, that's as defined as it is, say, in, I don't know, banking or plumbing. But my mother was a a very big reader, and she instilled in me a love of books. She she was a big fan of of Graham Greene, the English novelist. And um, she, she just encouraged me to read, and I loved it. And... After I got out of prison, I went to university. I did a PhD in, in history, and I thought I would probably become an academic. But as I was finishing the PhD, I realized I was falling out of love with what I was working on. And I, I would be writing, at my, I'd be at my desk writing, but I would be writing bits and pieces of memory of things to do with my absent father, um, with imprisonment and so on, and, and neglecting the PhD. I managed to finish the PhD, but I knew as soon as I'd finished it that I wanted to write fiction. And what I'd been working on in between uh, was turned into a novel called The Second Prison. It was my first novel. And the, shortly after it was published, I had a call from a producer at the BBC who said, would I go for a meeting? We met. He said, would you like to write screenplays? And then I had no experience of that. But for me, it was a dream come true. Somebody saying to me, do you want to write screenplays? I was very happy. <laughs> That's with a that. dream. I mean, you, you can't get much better than that, can you? No. So, and, and then it just rolled on from there. And this, but there was no plan. No. There was no plan for like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help address the issues I see in the world through fiction. No, but I do think that... I've become increasingly aware that drama has a political impact and a social impact that actually I don't think books or newspapers uh, do have anymore. Uh, for there, there was an 
a, a, an infamous miscarriage of justice in in the UK. Oh, oof, in the in the, the the original trials of the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six. These were Irish people who were wrongly imprisoned for IRA bombings in the UK. And it took 15 years for those miscarriages of justice to be redressed. There were, I know on the Guildford Four case, when four young Irish people went to prison for crimes they didn't commit, that there were seven books published on the Guildford Four case. I know because I wrote one of them and I co-wrote another one. But none of, all of those books together had less than 1% of the impact that Jim Sheridan's movie, In the Name of the Father, starring mm-hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis, had on, on on the public. Just the public were so shocked seeing that movie. Yet there had been books, there had been documentaries, there had been newspaper articles. But it took a movie to really shock and move people. Do you know who this is, Mr. Dixon? No, I don't. Well, then, would you be so kind as to read the statement that you took from him on the 3rd of November, 1974? A statement, my lord, which vindicates all of these people, all these innocent people. My lord, I need to see a copy of this statement. Someone, either that man or or his superior or his superior's superior, ordered that these people be used as scapegoats by a nation that was paying for blood. My lord! In return for the innocent blood spilled on the streets of Guildford. And by God, you've got your blood, Mr. Mrs. Pierce is making a political And recently in the UK, there's a a very powerful uh, TV drama called Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, which has addressed a terrible miscarriage of justice in the UK recently, where sub-post office employees were being jailed for frauds that they did not commit because of faulty software. Again, it was known about, there were newspaper articles, there were documentaries, but this amazing drama that took place and was broadcast recently has led to questions in Parliament, uh, the sacking of the head of the post office and so on. The computer system post office spent an arm and a leg on is faulty. No one else has ever reported any problems with Horizon. No one. You're responsible for the loss. I haven't got that money and I don't know where it's gone. These deficits um, So drama has, I mean, the first thing about drama is that it has to entertain. It has to give the audience what the audience is looking for. Nobody sits down and says, let's watch this drama for its political message. They don't. (laughs) They'll say, let's watch this drama because it's going to be exciting or moving. There'll be a love story. There'll be danger. There'll be tension, jeopardy. That's why, but within, you give the audience those things you give them great characters that they can uh, understand and identify with. You give them uh, situations that will get them excited or, or move them. And then within that, uh, within that framework, then you can say things about the world we live in. And that was always, that's, that's what I try to do generally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've often heard it, people refer to me as, it, uh, as that you don't want to give people their medicine. You still, you still have to make it, you know, you don't want to give people porridge. You still have to make it enticing and dramatic and, you know, engaging and not just the message. Exactly, exactly. That's the first part of my conversation with the creator of the show, Top Boy, uh, Ronan Bennett. Coming up, Roman will tell 
I mean, one of the best showbiz stories you'll ever hear about how Drake saved his show and why he wanted to write Top Boy as a novel. More with Ronan Bennett coming up. Yeah. You used to call me on my cell phone. Late night when you need my love. Call me on my cell phone. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Dakota Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Dakota Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Dakota Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Ronan Bennett, the screenwriter, novelist, and creator of the TV show Top Boy. This is one of my favorite showbiz stories I've ever heard on the show. So turns out Drake was a big fan of Top Boy, which was the show about, you know, crime in, in London, England and public housing. Drake really got into it. Top Boy gets canceled in the UK. Drake steps in and saved the show. Now, I had read about the story. You might have read about this story, too, in the, in the papers and stuff like that. But I had never heard Ronan tell the story himself. Here's the rest of my conversation with Ronan Bennett. I I never expected Top Boy to be big. I this was remember you've got to remember this was a decade before uh, Black Lives Matter and Me Too. We had a ninety five percent black cast, no real you know big big screen stars. So I thought we'd be lucky to make one season. But then the the season you know the season went out, and it clearly hit a spot that you know people had been waiting for. It connected it. The, the the reaction was fantastic, as you say, and then we were immediately commissioned to do a second season, and then we were cancelled. But what you do as a, as filmmakers as uh, and as screenwriters is when something like that happens, you know, you cry into your beer for a little bit, and then you shrug your shoulders, and you've got no choice but to move on, mm. and you move on to the next project, and that's what I did until two or three years later, I got a call from my partners uh, at Cowboy Films. And I got a call from them saying, could I come now to meet uh, a Canadian artist, a music artist? And I said to him, who is he? And they said it was somebody called Drake. And I, my kids knew who Drake was, but I have to confess, it's not my scene. I, I didn't know. And my kids then were probably 13, 14, something like that, massive Drake fans. And I told them they'd have to finish cooking the dinner themselves because I had to go and meet somebody called Drake. And they looked at me <laughs> kind of with contempt. You know, why are you meeting Drake? <laughs> and you show up and he says, well, that's the thing. I think there's a lot made of the fact that he did show up and he helped save the show and, and pitched to Netflix and all that. But what I, I don't hear talked about enough and I wanted to ask you about is why? 
Like where, where, like what he saw in the show, because he's obviously a very known to 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 Canadians. He's he's a very important. I mean, he's our largest cultural export of all time. I mean, you know, and his meaning in this country is is massive. But well, you know, I, you know, I didn't know who he was when I went to meet him. I definitely, by the time I left, I knew who he was, and him and future. Uh, you know his 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 business partner, yeah. and um, so we met at uh, the the Rosewood Hotel in London. And the way Drake had come across Top Boy, he told us, was that um, he'd been in a on tour in a hotel room. Somebody from his team knocked on the door and said, "You need to see this." And what they were looking at was a was Top Boy, but playing on it was a crappy version of Top Boy. It was on YouTube. And Drake looked at it and really liked it. He's he's always been a big supporter and prom- promoter of grime music here and grime artists. You know, I, I know he has a real affinity with London. And he told us, he and Future told us that um, they couldn't understand why it had been cancelled. And they, you know, they were going to do what, what, what it, whatever it took to get it going again. And... Uh, you know, he's a really impressive man, Drake. He, uh, you know, he was passionate. He was committed. And often in the, in in my world, maybe in yours too, Tom, you meet people who say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to help you. And then you never <laughs> hear from them again. Um, but Drake was not that man. And shortly afterwards, within a month, I would say, it might have been longer, but my memory is about a month. Uh, we were pitching to Netflix in LA, and again, usually in those in those pitches, it's usually the writer. It all falls falls on the writer. It's a horrible moment for the writer because you're the one. Everybody's looking at you. Everybody's waiting to hear what you have to say and how eloquently, how convincingly can you do it? I was ready. I prepared myself. I was ready to do it, um, but I didn't have. To, I didn't. I barely said a word. Drake oh. just said it all. Wow! And he just. He was, again, he was passionate. He was um, completely committed. And the meeting was over. And I got a call from my partner, uh, Charles Steele at Cowboy, to say Netflix had made an offer. And that was it. And it was all due to Drake and Future. The reincarnation of, of Top Boy was made possible was all due to them. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the most amazing stories um I've ever heard of just someone believing in a show and wanting to see more of it and believing that it needs to get made and kind of like, well, I got some cultural capital. Let's, let's do it. So, so then you, so then, so the, the last season of Top Boy was said to be its final one. You mentioned earlier, you were um, a novelist before your TV work. You were talking about some of the writing that you had done. You decided in the, in the novelization to, instead of focusing on, if you watch Top Boy, the the leads of the show, a lot of the time is spent with Duchesne and Sully. The novel is told through the eyes of Jack, a female gay drug dealer who who is who is a big big part of the show as well. But I was curious as to why you wanted to focus on her story when it came time to write the novel. So, I mean, writing Top Boy for me was a you know was an imaginative and creative stretch because I'm writing about a world that I you know I'm not from. I was. Uh, helped greatly by collaborators, by my friend Jerry Jackson, who I mentioned earlier, 
And then as the actors started to grow into their roles by, you know, by their input as well. But then something really odd happened. Just as we had, we had already started filming the first Netflix season, and there was a knock on my door one day. And I opened up the door. There was a young black woman there. And she said, are you Ronan Bennett? And she had a script. She gave me a script. So I, I brought her in and sat her down and we, we had a coffee and we talked. And she was gay. And she said to me, and th- th- this, these are her words, not mine. She said to me, why are there no dykes in Top Boy? And I... I took a breath and I said, look, um, you know, I'm already right at the edge of, of my imaginative capacities with, uh, with what I'm writing, that this is, I'm a straight white man. I, this is, I, how would I know what to, anyway, she talked to me about it. We'd already cast an actress called um, Jasmine Jobson in the role of Jack, a new character that I had created for the Netflix series. But Jack, I hadn't imagined Jack being gay. And I hadn't imagined her being very prominent, but so compelling was this fan's story that I thought I had to write Jack in that way. And that's how that came about. And she's just one of the characters who really took off in the Netflix season. What happened? It's nothing. Jackie, some people are gay in it. Some people just need to get heads around that. Simple. Oh, Jackie, man, I'm sorry. It's the 21st century we're living in. I still got to deal with this shit. I knew that when I came to the novel that I, 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 did, I wanted to take a step down. Jack isn't, she's sort of in the inner circle, but of, of, the, of, the, of that drug organization, or gang, I should call it, rather than organization. Um, but she's not quite. She's, she's an outsider in a world of outsiders, mm. and that attracted me, that, that idea. When you mentioned... Um... You, you were at the end of your imaginative capacities. You know, I think through the, the run of Top Boy, there was a lot of... Um, I, saw you get, I saw you get asked a lot about whether or not you, you should be telling these stories, whether a, a, a white man from, from Belfast should be telling stories from these communities. And I think, I mean, I think at this point, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, you know, like you, you've seen the love you have from from these communities, the, the, the way that these communities feel so... Uh, have talked about feeling, you know, accurately, you know, represented by you. I'm not as interested in the in the whether or not. I'm I'm curious as to the how. Like when you when you take on stories like this, for me, for people who haven't read the book or or seen the show, there is, um, you know, the the language used by you know folks from these communities uh, is reflected uh, accurately. Um, so I just want to get the how out of you. Like, what are the concerns you have when you, when you take this on? How do you approach it? You know, that's actually the, the simplest part, Tom, because it's, it's, it's just called research. I mean, it, it, it's, not that, it's not that complicated. You find people who have knowledge that you need and you don't already have, and you, and you listen. I think I can't emphasize overemphasized how important it is for people like me to listen rather than to talk. When I, when I was, was researching for Top Boy to begin with, and subsequently, I, I tried not to talk too much. I would just ask a couple of questions, a bit like you're doing with me, 
to elicit, you know, just to see where it would go, to see what they would say. The roadmen who I talked to early on were, were, were young kids, and I allowed, they allowed me to tape record them, which was obviously a great help in reproducing the, the language. And then, in a way, the language wasn't the most complicated part of it at all. The hardest thing for me to do was to, to you know, just to make this, tell the story, make the story. So um, research is, it's not that difficult, Tom, no. really. No, I, I, I hear you. Um, I, I really appreciate getting the chance to talk to you about about the show, about the your own journey on it, about the now leading to the novel, and and uh, and thanks thanks for making the time for us. No, a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. If I was Drake, I'd be worried after that interview airs that people are going to start writing and being like, can you help bring back the, the beachcombers? That is Ronan Bennett, the creator, showrunner for the dro- former Drake executive produced TV series Top Boy. Ronan's written a novel based on the show. It's called Jack, a Top Boy Story, and it's out now. The other conversation we have up on our podcast feed today is my conversation with two members of the Back to Back Theater touring company. Uh, Back to Back Theater is a show uh, for and, and by Um, creators who are neurodivergent, who um, have intellectual disabilities, and they're here to talk a little bit about their show. See you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.